consolidating school districts, surprise, Ted Strickland leads, and getting Columbus to recycle. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the nationwide studio at WOSU at Coastside, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Joe Hallett, Senior Editor for the Columbus Dispatch. Gil Price, Managing Editor for the Columbus Collin Post. Dale Butland, Democratic Strategist. And Bob Clegg, Republican Strategist. Ohio has 611 school districts. This week, a report by the Brookings Institute and the Greater Ohio Policy Center said that's too many. It recommends consolidating school districts that have fewer than 2,500 students. Doing so could save millions of dollars and eliminate about one-third of the state's school districts. Gil Price, pretty easy math. Not so hard, not so easy to do. Easy math, hard politics. Um, You know, we've seen in terms of Columbus uh, how closing a single school uh, or two or three schools can have a powerful impact throughout a district. When you're talking about closing districts, many of which are rural, most of which would probably be rural, many of which would entail consolidating districts with much larger transportation and other kinds of logistical times, even though there may be tremendous cost savings, the likelihood of, of resistance uh, for that is tremendous. So how do you do it? They've mentioned a base closure commission, an impartial group that says, we're going to consolidate all these, take them all, leave them all, but this is the deal. But could that do it? I, I think as long as you have elected school board members, you're going to have a problem getting this done because, I mean, these school board members would obviously be obviously be on the front lines of trying any kind of consolidation, and they're the ones that get the phone calls from the parents saying, what are you going to do to my, you know, my kid here by trying to, you know, instead of going two miles to the school, you may have to go, you know, six, seven, eight miles, and that's, that's a big problem. I agree uh, with both these gentlemen. Uh, Ohio does not do big change real well. Um, But, you know, I grew up in the state of Maryland. And Maryland, like a lot of other states, organizes their schools by county uh, rather than these independent districts. If you did that in Ohio, we would go from 611 districts to 88 districts. If you think about the savings, the millions and millions of dollars in administrative costs, the duplication things that you could get rid of and so on, it would be enormous. Everybody knows Ohio has school funding problems. The the howls of protest from the elected school board folks and other people in administration who would be out of work perhaps would be deafening, but taxpayers would save a lot and I think it's worth considering. But think about what happened in with win-win in Columbus and Franklin County when you dealt with some of the issues of, uh, especially in urban counties, where you're dealing with not just the issue of, you know, large school districts, but you're also dealing with issues of race, class, uh, poverty, and how those kinds of things intersect with power. Joe, how would you convince Bexley or New Albany to merge with the Southwestern City School District? Well, I don't know if you can, because this was done, you may recall, in the late 1960s. Mm. And uh, there were vast rural districts. Uh, I I actually grew up in one, uh, where a number of these tiny little high schools were consolidated into into bigger schools across Ohio. And it caused tremendous political upheaval in those. This report, though, just nibbles around the edges of, of the broader problem. We often hear that, gov- that Ohio 
has too much government. The problem is Ohio has too many governments. We have to ask ourselves questions. Do we really need townships? Do we really need 88 county governments? Can we, can we govern by region? Can we have metro governments? Because there are, the governments are costing more than the tax dollars available. And all of these governments have taxing authority. And if you look at our state taxes and so forth, they're really not that high. It's that when you pile on all these other taxing districts is what makes Ohio a high-tax state. Uh, I think that is a very shrewd point. And let me just say that when it comes to schools, that's why the same Brookings report found that we are 47th in the nation in terms of classroom spending, but we're the ninth highest in the country in terms of spending on administration. So how do you break this? It's, it's a cycle, and it's how do you break that? Does it take a crisis to break it where... You know, we could be on the cusp of a big crisis with if the federal money and the state money doesn't come through and there's major cuts in local school districts. Does that force the issue? Otherwise, how does it get done? I think, I think you're going to need some kind of serious funding fiscal situation to get this thing going. I also think, like Dale said, you're going to have to show the taxpayers that in the end, more money will go into the classroom versus to the administration. And also, maybe even their taxes might go down. That would be the biggest selling point, I think. And I'm not sure if that would be the case. But I think that could be the biggest selling point that they could make to, to get people to accept it. I think you'd also, though, need um, some sort of political consensus, which would be very extremely difficult to get. Because whoever puts this in, I mean, somebody else will see it as a real opportunity to, if a Democrat puts it in or a Republican will see it as a real opportunity to galvanize uh, certain areas of the state, certain groups. If a, if a Republican puts it in, a Democrat will see the same opportunity to do the same thing. You almost have to have you know, a broad consensus, and I'm not sure that you have a broad consensus for that kind of approach. And so that commission idea might, might work if the time came. But then the commission has to be elected, doesn't it? Well, the base closure commission was appointed, for mm -hmm. the military case anyway. Let's get to our next topic. For months, Ted Strickland has been getting hammered for Ohio's job losses, for his income tax delay plan, for the departure of high-level administrators. Despite all of that, his poll numbers are up at least in this poll, at least for now. The latest Quinnipiac poll has Ted Strickland leading John Kasich by five percentage points, 44% to 39%. Now, Strickland, of course, has trailed in other recent polls. Bob Clegg, polls go up and polls go down. The number that struck me was 62% of those polled didn't know enough about John Kasich to have an opinion of him. And, and that's where you have to think whether this is really good news for Governor Strickland, because if you look at it, if 62% of the people don't even know John Kasich, and he's only getting, and Kasich's getting 39%, and, and the governor's only getting 44%, beating him by only five, five percentage points, that is telling you this election isn't going to be about John Kasich. It's going to be about Ted Strickland. And I went back and checked. He, um, the governor has not polled over 50% since May of last year. And if you're the incumbent and you're around 40 to 45 percent, you know, where he's been pretty much stuck for the last almost year, you're going to have a very, very tough re-election. This Did may be surprising to you, but I disagree a bit with him. <laughs> oh, I, I find that hard to believe, Dale. <laughs> Not that he's absolutely right about Strickland's approval ratings. All that can be attributed, or at least the lion's share of that can be attributed to the, the, the recession and loss of jobs. But where I disagree 
is I believe <clears throat> that this election will not be so much about Ted. I think it's going to be about who best defines John Kasich, because 62% don't know who he is. If the Republicans are successful in portraying him as a dynamic agent of change in a state that needs one, he's going to win. If, on the other hand, the Democrats are successful in portraying him as too radical for the state of Ohio, a guy that wants to abolish the income tax and so forth, then I really think that we have a better shot of winning. I think there's something interesting there, too. I, I talked to Pete Brown, who did that poll, and I asked him about a number that nobody talked about or looked at, what was happening with African-American voters. In, in 19, or in 2006, at this, about this time in the campaign, uh, Ken Blackwell was polling about 32% among black voters. He ended up getting 15%. Um, in, in what I looked in the numbers, it showed that Kasich was at about 11%, uh, 65-11, with a 71% approval rating for Strickland. So Strickland's approval rating isn't really that high among black voters. But at the same time, if black voters knew no more about him, know more about his stance on certain issues, then he might even, uh, A, lose support, and B, Strickland might gain support among black voters because right now, um, you know, right now, Strickland is polling 2% lower than Kasich among white voters, and he's also polling 54% higher among black voters. Joe, go ahead. Well, I think there are several points to be made about this poll. One is that it is remarkable that Strickland's ahead given the, the political environment and, and the state of the economy. I mean, and he's given low marks uh, in the poll for the state of the economy, but he's still ahead. Secondly, the poll shows that women favor him by an overwhelming margin, which speaks to his likability. I mean, he's got a Reagan factor about him. You might not agree with him or so forth, but he's a very likable guy. The other thing is, uh, Gil or Dale mentioned, 62% don't know John Kasich. So look out. I think the Strickland people might come out pretty early, go on the air, yeah. and start to define John Kasich. Is, is that, are we getting, how late in the game are we for that high a number, that high of an unknown number? We're, in, we're basically in March, six or eight months out. Is that, are we getting late for a gubernatorial candidate to be that unknown? No, 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 not at all. I mean, people aren't even focused on this election. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, they can try to define John Kasich, much as John Corzine tried to define Chris Christie in that gubernatorial race in, in November. It in didn't work. I think the problem that Governor Strickland's going to have is the fact that the political environment nationally is so bad for Democrats that his ability to regain ground is going to be very tough. And if you look at the poll and you look at people's perceptions of the political parties here in Ohio, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans are almost equally viewed unfavorably. The Democrats are slightly higher unfavorables than the Republicans. The only party that had a favorable was the Tea Party, which was, you know, 30% favorable, 20% yeah. unfavorable. So, I mean, that, it tells you, though, the environment out there is very, very tough for a Democrat and more importantly, an incumbent yeah. Democrat. The incumbents. Let's get to our next topic. A group of pastors from Columbus is taking on a house in Congress. It's the, the C Center, C Street Center. It's a mysterious boarding house for members of Congress. The house is called, as I said, the C Street Center. It's a home for evangelical Christian members of Congress. 
It was also the home of two congressmen caught up in sex scandals recently. As first reported in the dispatch this week, the Columbus pastors want the IRS to investigate the C Street Center and its claim to be a church. Joe Hallett, you wrote this story. So what if the C Street Center claims to be a church? Well, so what is that? The pastors who filed the complaint say this is a church masquerading, or this is a boarding house for members of Congress masquerading as a church. And because it is a church, it has to disclose nothing about itself. It files no tax returns, n no sort of a, a disclosure at all. So we don't know who is funding this, who the financial backers are behind this church. Uh, some of these pastors suspect that this could be funded by wealthy individuals or corporations or whoever who are using it as a way to influence members of Congress on legislation and so forth. So these are mainline uh, denominational uh, pastors who say when, s when a boarding house like this gets a designation, tax exemption as a church, it threatens a tax exemption of mainline churches. So it's one of the reasons they went after it. Why 13 Columbus, Ohio pastors? Well, these uh, 13 pastors have struck before. Uh, you may remember in 2006, they filed IRS complaints challenging the tax-exempt tax status of two megachurches in the Columbus area. Uh, one was uh, Reverend Rod Parsley Church, World Harvest Church, and the other was a church in Lancaster. Um, and they alleged that those churches were overtly politicking on behalf of uh, Ken Blackwell, then the gubernatorial nominee for the Republican Party. And they have gone out of state before, changing an Arizona organization. They have. Yeah. They, they, they generally go after ch conservative churches. There are no <laughs> doubt about it. Yeah. Let, let me say that this is one of those stories that could, and I emphasize could, end up having a major national impact because it's a story on two different levels. Uh, on the one and most basic level, it is, as Joe suggested, a question of whether this outfit should have a tax exemption and provides illegal uh, rent subsidies to members of Congress. But on a much bigger level, it's a story that was first told in a book called The Family, written by a guy named Jeff Charlotte. I'm not in the habit of pushing books, but I will say that this is a fascinating read for anybody who cares to do it. He claims that this outfit, The Family, was established in 1935, is a, a kind of a shadowy, conspiratorial, right-wing organization formed as a uh, contrarian organization to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. He claims that they have members of congressmen, senators, foreign dictators, military generals, and so forth that meet in secret cells for prayer and uh, for weekly dinner, dinner meetings. <coughs> he says that <coughs> this is the most interesting thing. They are sort of a neo-Calvinist group who believes that all these leaders, if they share the political point of view, are chosen by God and have an obligation to God to stay in office no matter what wrongdoing they may be involved in, including these sex scandals that we were just talking about. How come the Republicans always have the conspiracies? I, you know what? <laughs> it's amazing. It's, you know, if we were so tricky, I don't understand why we're in the minority here. But anyways, uh, this isn't a political thing by a Pete, because um, this, this center also has Democrat congressmen like Bart Stupak that are living there. So it's not necessarily a Democrat-Republican thing. It's more of a liberal, conservative thing. These ministers are liberal, 
and and they don't like the conservative churches being involved in politics. I'm sure they don't mind the liberal churches being involved in politics, but they just don't want the conservative ones to be involved. And that's why they're seeing, you know, all these boogeymen around the corner and everything like that. Gil Price, what's the proper role of churches in the political process? Well, you know, I may not even be the best person to do this. I'm also a pastor, well, and I try I to you. keep. <laughs> well, I know that, but I believe I believe there is no role. Now, that's me personally. I, I have always, and even though I'm as a pastor, I separate my politics from uh, my religious uh, convictions and 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 keep the two, uh, you know, separation of church and state. I, I think the concern, obviously, uh, that some people have about this whole thing is that when you begin to mix. Uh, politics with religion too carefully, you you not only and I think uh, Ch Chuck Colson has even said this. You know, you not only do you affect the political dynamic, but you affect the church. I, I, I was I remember in 1988 there wasn't just uh, Pat Robertson running for president, but there was also Paul Laxalt, and I was I quite frankly I was kind of hoping that Paul Laxalt was going to become the Republican nominee because I wanted to see a guy, I wanted to see how these conservative pastors who didn't believe in you know, drinking, smoking, and fornicating, we're going to support a guy who backed legalized gambling and legalized prostitution. All right, Reverend Jesse Jackson ran in, 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 in as well. 1988 as well. And our governor is a minister. That's right. Governor Strickland's a minister. I won't argue with that. One of the things we find, though, is a lot of these politicians who don't believe in drinking, smoking, and fornicating do a lot of all those things. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they get caught, then it becomes... <laughs> okay, then they... They use their religion in their apologies. <laughs> Topic four, the Ohio Inspector General this week announced he will look into the contraband bust that wasn't at the governor's mansion. You may know the story by now. <coughs> Prison officers were tipped that a work release inmate was supposed to get a delivery of a package while working at the governor's mansion. State police set up a sting, figuring it was either drugs or cigarettes, but they called it off. They say for safety reasons, Republicans have cried foul. Dale Butler, whatever happened there, this this doesn't smell good for Governor Strickland or Democrats. Well, you know, I, I have to tell you, though, I, I, I'm having difficulty figuring out exactly what is being charged or alleged here by the Republicans. So far as I know, nobody has claimed or alleged that the governor or any member of his staff was involved in illegal drug activity of any kind. Uh, so as of now, it seems to me that the explanation of the public safety director and the patrol that they called off this sting out of concern for safety for the governor, the patrol, and the public sounds reasonable to me. Might it not look bad if there was a drug bust at the back gate of the governor's mansion? Well, you know, it's, I suppose that's open to interpretation. Yeah. My thought is that if somebody is smuggling contraband, whether it's tobacco, which is another allegation, whether it's tobacco or marijuana, whatever it is, um, I'm not sure you can hold the governor responsible for that. That happens lots of times in businesses and, and probably government offices all over the country. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think this whole story is strange, and I think it fits into a bigger picture here of of the politics of the <coughs> highway patrol, the 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 f how many we had four or five former highway patrol superintendents came out this week and said this uh, patrol has gotten so much more politicized than it ever was under any other governor, and I think that is the big issue here. What how has this been uh, patrol been politicized? In what ways? And that's why the inspector general has decided to start investigating this because there's a lot more to this than just that one incident. Well, and I, th I think Bob raises a, a very good point. Uh, why is the governor's office involved in this? 
anyway, in, in, in determining what investigations the patrol takes on and which ones it doesn't. I mean, this may not be the only example of this. There yep. could be more to come. And uh, we saw some of this in the, in the Voinovich administration, too. Uh, the patrol is an agency that which should not be politicized. Although I must say, in my personal experience, I do, have, do know that the patrol plays politics very well, too. Um, it comes down to the definition of a six-pack, a lot of this, because the, the police say the inmate was going to get a six-pack, which they say was slang for drugs. Others are saying, no, that was just tobacco. I looked up six-pack on Google and found a big fat guy with beer bottle. <laughs> so, I mean, does it matter what it was, whether it was drugs or cigarettes? No. It doesn't really matter if it was drugs, cigarettes, or alcohol. Maybe it was just a six-pack of beer, you know, <laughs> who knows? But, um, you know, I, I just think it sounds fishy. Yeah. Or smells fishy, whatever. And it just, just doesn't make sense. Okay. Our final topic, Mayor Coleman in his State of the City address said that Columbus is getting greener. One of his promises for the next two years is to expand the city's underperforming curbside recycling program. The mayor wants to expand Columbus's recycling rate up to 35%. One idea is to combine that program with the yard waste pickup, but only collect recyclables and grass clippings every other week. The result, the mayor says, would be to save $5 million a year in tipping fills at the landfill. Gil Price, will this work? Well, I, I think it's a good idea. Uh, that's the question. You know, I don't know what kind of response they've gotten on, on recycling right now. I know that... It's pretty uh, low because and, it's, and that's, it's hard to do. And that's the problem because, you know, in order to get something like that, you really have to get enough community support. And we're, we may like to be green, but we're not as green as we like to be. <laughs> Yeah, you have to pay like eight bucks a month. They give you a little red bin, and you have to put it out there. So you have to pay to be a good citizen to recycle. And I don't think a lot of a lot of people, quite frankly, um, aren't good citizens like that. Well, it's kind of baffling because, uh, in my view, this is one of the more progressive big cities in the country, and to have it have such a low rate of recycling. I mean, the second lowest in the Midwest, I believe, a survey found, is is strange to me. I live in Westerville. We have curbside uh, recycling, and it works very well. The rate of participation is is extremely high, and I think I think it's a learned behavior. And once it's installed and implemented, that that folks are going to do it and appreciate doing it. I think the reason that you don't have it going on now, why the rates are so low, is because we don't have curbside pickup in Columbus. Free uh, curbside. We have curbside free, pickup, but free you have curbs. to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, right. But I think if you had the free curbside service, I have no doubt in my mind at all that our rates of participation would go up hugely. So how do you pay for it, Bob? Um, that's why they had a tax increase, <laughs> 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 which is the whole point of this. I mean, they increased taxes, so now they're trying yeah. to figure out ways to spend it, which <laughs> I thought it was interesting. I, I thought the whole mayor's speech on the state of the city was interesting in that, you know, last year he was setting up the tax increase. And this year I would have liked to have seen him say, you know, thank you. Here's how we're trying to save money because we want to be good stewards because you're trusting us. He did but mention the did pension reforms. Yeah, 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 mentioned yeah. It, but, yeah, but he also would talk more about how they're going to spend it. And then you have these neighborhood commissions who are already out there saying, I want mine. I want my money. You know, it's... Discouraging. Back to this question, though, of the you know recycling. I think it's important to understand that the choice we have is not between paying for recycling on the one hand or paying nothing on the other. Because, as the mayor pointed out, 
uh, 60% of what we throw away can be reused and recycled. Mm -hmm. We are filling up landfills. If we build a new one now, it, it would cost, uh, what, what do you say, it would cost $93 million, million, dollars million dollars now. Dollars, yeah. If you wait 20 years, it'll be roughly $175 million. Someone's going to have to pay for that. Yep. So, so uh, you know, recycling costs, um, it, you know, you, we're going to pay one uh, way or the other. Speaking but of paying one way or the other, if the city saves $5 million in tipping fees, Swaco loses $5 million in tipping fees, which they rely on to run that landfill. How do they, how do they run the landfill? <laughs> you answer <laughs> that question. <laughs> That's a good question. Well, they were importing trash, but they had considered importing trash from other counties, which doesn't solve the mayor's problem, that landfill filling up too quickly. Exactly. Well, it's a price you pay for being green. I mean, you know, and that's what we're all striving for. But yeah, look, it, this is an environmental imperative, I think. And it, it's part of, it, going back to what Joe said, this is also part of being a major league city. Okay. Right? But I think it also relate, reflects those kind of balancing, you know, tipping yeah. problems and balancing problems that you have on both sides of this issue. Because obviously, if if you do well at one thing, then, then, this, then county suffers on the other hand. So it's, it, it's a balancing issue one way or the other. You could just charge a trash fee. That would work, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Time for our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Final thoughts, predictions for the weeks ahead. Joe Hallett, you're up first. Well, if you'll permit a shameless promotion, you want to read uh, Sunday's Dispatch because colleague Mark Niquette and I had a 90-minute interview at, uh, with Tom Noe in his prison uh, at Hocking uh, Prison this week. And he had some pretty interesting things to say, some things that might actually uh, cause the Supreme Court to take a look at his case. All right. Interesting. Gil? Uh, I, th I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, Dale raised the issue of who defines and, ho and how John Kasich is defined. I think the, the shaping of John Kasich is probably going to be one of the earliest things that happens in the next few weeks and, and months of this campaign. Dale? I predict that this uh, <coughs> story in the dispatch this week about the filing of the complaint with the IRS by the 13 pastors regarding the family is going to get legs nationally. We don't know very much about this shadowy or organization, who funds it, how the money comes, how much money is there, but I think through this complaint we may find out a lot more. And Bob? I think uh, this uh, primary season, the, the big race is going to be between Jennifer Bruner and Lee Fisher for the U.S. Senate uh, Democrat nomination. Uh, and it's a close race, 29-20, Fisher in the lead with a lot of people undecided. Almost half still yeah. have, don't know who they're going to vote for. I urge you to check out our website, WOSU.org. There you can get a preview of the topics we're going to talk about. If you miss a show because of the Olympics or because we're on late at night, like in the coming weeks, you can check that out. Uh, we have streaming video of each episode on WOSU.org. Also, check out our blog. We're looking for input on how to improve the show. We're going to give it a new look in the coming weeks. We want your feedback as to what we can do better. All of that at WOSU.org. For our crew, for our panel here at WOSU at COSITE, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. <laughs>